welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. If you are still standing, I would like to pledge to our flag on this Independence Day our allegiance. I would like uh, Pastor Craig and Pastor Craig. <laughs> Craig and Craigers. I want you guys to shout out the lead as uh, revered patriots and veterans of our armed services. Pastor Craigers, Pastor Craig. <laughs> They're going to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> not every church, not every church has two pastors that are both named Craig, that are both veterans. I'm just saying. We are blessed and highly favored. Amen. Amen. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Woo! Alright, you can have a seat. While you're having a seat, you're going to see on the screen Psalms 119, verse 45. Psalms 119 verse 45 was uh, an inspirational verse to our founding fathers. And I also uh, want you to understand that the scriptures have applications for anything that it is that you need. If you think that you have a problem or a situation or a scenario in your life that is outside of scripture counsel, A, you are doomed. And B, you're ignorant. God gave us the complete word that we would need in order to live a successful, victorious life in all things. Now, if you haven't found it yet, I got that. And to be fair, most people don't look. It's a whole lot easier to Google your problem than it is to actually ask God. G-O-O-G-L-E is greater than G-O-D. And um, I pray that this particular group of people, that you have a, an understanding that there is absolutely nothing going on in your life, in your uh, posterity, in our nation and in our world, that is outside of the parameters of God's ability through His Word to speak life and truth into I pray you get that. I pray you get that. Psalm 119, the entire psalm, 168 verses, are about the power and the ability of the Word of God to deal with different areas of our lives. The longest psalm in all of Scripture, the longest chapter 
in all of the books of the Bible, in the longest book of the Bible, is about the Word of God. It also just happens to be the exact very center of the Scriptures. (laughs) God knew what He was doing. This particular verse in Psalm 119 says that I will walk at liberty. For I seek thy precepts. The more time you understand seeking the precepts of God. Now there's a ton going on here that if you just glance past this, you'll miss the power. Seeking the precepts of God is different than reading the Bible. There are people that read the Bible all day long, all the time, all over the world, and it doesn't do a ripping thing for them. There's a difference between reading the Bible and seeking the precepts of God. Jesus gave us one of the most powerful promises that I, me personally, that I embrace in my life, which is, he said, what you seek for, you find. The application is there. What you have in your life right now is what you sought. And I know you're going to be like, oh, I didn't seek this, just showed up. Don't make me cuss. What you have in your life is what you seek for. If you're depressed, you seek depressive things. If you're experiencing poverty, you have sought poverty principles. If you're seeking, if you are experiencing sickness and disease, then you've probably let the commercials on TV tell you to be sick. You've sought it. If you seek the precepts of God, this verse promises you that you will walk at liberty. Now think about that. Not necessarily in liberty. You will walk at liberty. Because here's what God knew when he was writing this that the author of this psalm didn't know. The word of God is Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 1 which is the very first scripture in all of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 is not the first verse of the Bible. I know there's probably a bunch of rabbinic Jews who would be really irritated at me right now. But they're not really here. Uh, We have... We have a Messianic Jew, though. She's really proud of it. (laughs) Uh, They uh, Genesis one one says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That sounds like the beginning. Now that's an annotation of the beginning. Even before that beginning, there was another beginning, which is John 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. I can assure you the Word came before the creation. Because the Word created. That Word was God. His name is Jesus Christ. And so when you walk, when you are seeking the precepts, what you're really doing is seeking Christ. As you seek Christ... You walk at Him. And Him is liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, we just sang that, there's freedom. And it doesn't doesn't mean the Spirit of the Lord as in the third part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. It's talking about the attitude 
the mindset of God. If you have the attitude and the mindset, the spirit, you know, this is how cheerleaders use the word spirit. They say, we have spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? It means attitude. It means a mindset. When you have the attitude or the mindset of God himself, you have the attitude and the mindset of liberty. Now, for most Americans, what that means is, great, I can do what I want. Go get drunk, buy some drugs, and party on. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's not freedom. That's the highest form of bondage. Because the enemy tells you that that's personal freedom while he entraps you in a smaller and smaller prison. It's actually the highest form of slavery to think that way. You are not free to serve self. Self is the most most slavish master you will ever encounter. More than Satan. More than Satan. I know that's a radical statement. You're not free to do what you want. You're free to do what you're created for. There is a huge difference. As you walk at the precepts of God, which is Jesus Christ, you will walk at liberty. And the more you walk at and you focus and you look on and you make your steps sure and you stay on the path, the more liberty and freedom you yourself will experience. The founding fathers knew that they weren't creating this perfect situation for all people in our nation to always be in perfect liberty and perfect freedom. But they did know that what they were creating was an ability for us to at least walk at it. What you choose to do with your freedom, what you choose to do with the liberty that you have been given, is yours to do it. Galatians 5.1 again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And now here's the part that you don't have on your refrigerator. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of slavery. Christ set you free. And you can walk right back into your slave master and present him your arms for him to handcuff you and throw you on the prison floor and molest you for the rest of your life. You are free to do it. You are free to go back to your slave master, you are free to destroy your slave master. Behold, I place before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that both you and your seed may live. In the Amplified Version of the Bible, it says, And I will walk at liberty, for I seek and deeply long for Your precepts. Seek and deeply long for. If you want to learn how to live in liberty, the best thing you could possibly do is be intimate with the one that created liberty. (laughs) I know that that seems simple, but I got to tell you, I've been doing ministry a long time, and most people don't get that. They think the more that they love and serve and become intimate with God, the more restricted their lives are. My, the, <laughs> I can't keep track of how wide the, the borders are in my life right now. Right. Amen. Amen. You, you, and I, I pray that you get this. I pray that you get this. This is so absolutely contrary to the concept of the world. 
that it would probably bother you. But the more intimate I become with the son of liberty, the more liberty I experience. Man, I could give you thousands of stories right now. They're all going through my head, but I want to stay on track because there's some really important things I want to deal with. (sighs) Stop. In 1984, uh, the American Political Review published an article titled The Relative Influence of European Writers on Late 18th Century American Political Thought. That sounds like a fun read, don't it? (laughs) After reviewing nearly 15,000 documents by the Founding Fathers, the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence are normally referred to as the Founding Fathers, Um, between 1760 and 1805. So 15,000 documents that the Founding Fathers wrote, including personal letters back and forth to friends and family, spouses, um, and official documents, like the Federalist Papers. If you've never heard of the Federalist Papers, I super encourage you to go and read them. They're free online. You can download them. The Federalist Papers are the papers written by the guys that wrote the Constitution explaining every word of the Constitution and the intent behind it. If we would actually read the Federalist Papers, then we wouldn't... Our legislators and judges and maniacal leaders wouldn't be able to redefine words. Because that's what they've done. Like, uh, part of the Constitution says that for the general welfare... They have taken general welfare, and just so you know, trillions of dollars are now spent on everything from studying the sexual habits of a guinea pig by your tax dollars under the concept of general welfare. Just so you know, the government says studying the sexual habits of a guinea pig is for your general welfare. And, and I know you're thinking, come on. I, I, they, that's how they define it. They, abortion fell under general welfare. It was general welfare to kill babies. <laughs> I know you're shocked. The, the, the writers, the authors of the Federalist Papers told us what they meant by general welfare, but because we won't go to the actual intent of the authors, man, I hope you get this as it relates to Scripture. The intent of the author of the Scriptures is pretty darn important. Because I got news for you, a bunch of times, I just had, just the other day, if you read, if you read my email on Thursday, you know what? No, 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 no. Stop it. I'm going to stop writing you. Oh, yeah, no, no, don't take it away. Please don't. Yeah, do it. I spent like two and a half hours studying them and thinking about you guys and praying and sending it out. And I say, those of you that read my email on Thursday, Thursday, what today is today? Sunday. (laughs) Anyway, on Thursday, you might have heard me allude to the fact that I encountered this gal um, this week who literally was arguing with me about why she should be sick and using scripture to prove that she's supposed to be sick. And, it, and it, the thing is, is that it had been a while since some, I, some people used to do that all the time when I would go and try to get them healed. And I was so ignorant back then when I was young that I would debate them. No, you're supposed to be healed. No, I'm supposed to be sick. Like, I'm going to win. <laughs> like, if somebody wants to be sick, you're not going to, like, debate them into help. 
And so I was so caught off guard by this gal because it had been a while since someone debated their right to be sick with me um, that it... Uh, that the way that I engaged with her was way different because I used to debate people and just use scriptures, but now I talk to people based upon relationship. And I, I said to her, um, I said, are you married? And she said, yeah. I said, does your husband love you? She said, of course. I said, if your husband could, if he had supernatural ability, like in a bottle, do you think that he would love you enough to pour that bottle down your throat and for you to be relieved of this problem, this sickness, this pain? And she said, of course. And I said, you think your husband loves you more than God? And she obviously couldn't answer. I took the debate out of it by taking it into relationship, into intimacy. There are people in this room that you know that there are people you love... And you also know that there are people that love you intensely. But you don't know if God will do that thing for you. It just shows how misaligned some of the important precepts of our heart are as it relates to the benefits of the Savior who gave his entire life, gave everything for every drop of blood, the very breath in his lungs. Went to hell and suffered for you. That's why Romans 8 says, He who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. Anyway, the, these 15,000 documents that they researched... The purpose of their research was to find out where the influence came to the founding fathers writing the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, the three most important documents ever penned by a human hand outside of the Scriptures. They have, uh, just so you know, we are 200, America is 245 years old today. Woohoo, she looks good, doesn't she? Amen. I'm still attracted to her. Amen. This is the oldest nation under one governing document in the history of mankind. The average age of a nation under a constitution, an unchanged document, is 13 years. I know, right? Amen. Now you know why Africa, there's new nations like all the time. Like some, so I, I've been to nations and people said, what nation is that? Like, it's a nation in Africa. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. It's because they're always rebirthing. Their, their, things are changing all the time. It's, there's a coup. Nation's overthrown. They get a new leader. They get a new document. There's a coup. They get a new, it's over and over. Our nation is the only nation that's 245 years old under the same governing, governing documents that were there from the birth of our country. And so they did this in 1984. They did this study. They wanted to figure out, like, how did they do this? The whole world actually understands, except for most Americans, especially if you're in high school right now because they're trying to teach you critical race theory that tell you that all these founding fathers were a bunch of slave masters and racist and 
and whatever. These, those poor ignorant people. They've got nothing better to do than to conjure up lies and then feed them into our, uh, our public school system. But the, the whole world recognizes the fact that what was birthed here was literally supernatural. Literally. It's literally supernatural. There has never been a more prosperous place. There has never been a, a, uh, a more um, freedom-inducing system that has ever been created in all of mankind for the liberties of the individual citizens. Uh, the, the concepts of capitalism that created, that lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Amen. The best healthcare system in the world. The be- I mean, whatever, whatever you got... We had a hand in it. And so the whole world literally, in fact, I can tell you this, some of the most patriotic people that I listen to on a weekly basis are non-Americans. British, Spaniards, uh, there's a Canadian I listen to, there's a, an Israeli Jew that I listen to, a, rib, a rabbinical Jew that I listen to. But some of the most patriotic people I listen to aren't Americans. Because we don't value what we have. You see that in marriages all the time. Oh, well, you know, my wife. But man, this job is really awesome. (laughs) Really? (laughs) The job. Over your wife. (laughs) It's special. It's short bus special. So in these 15,000 documents, let me tell you what the most quoted and referenced people were. Number two, skipping number one. Number two was uh, Montesquieu. Montesquieu was a French um, political uh, writer. He also was a a philosopher. He actually studied a ton of of political writings and people and nations. And uh, he was a very, very influential thinker from France from a failed governmental system that spoke into uh, how important it is to have it right. So Montesquieu, and remember that name because I'm going to reference him a couple more times, was number two, quoted more in these 15,000 documents at 8.3%. 8.3% of these documents referenced or quoted Montesquieu. Number three was a, uh, a fellow by the name of Sir William Blackstone. He was a Brit, God bless the Brit, uh, who uh, did the exact same thing except from a, a British concept, and he wrote some incredible, incredible writings that the Founding Fathers uh, referenced a ton. The, and then the number four person was John Locke. John Locke wrote a very, very famous uh, document called The Two Treaties of Government. And it was, um, it was honestly probably one of the most influential political writings of the day. In fact, still today, it's a, it's a, it's a, widely, a widely published governmental document that people reference all the time as to try to figure out their government. So what is number one? Anybody know? The scriptures. Specifically, Deuteronomy and St. Paul. At 34%, 34%, number two being 8.9, 34% of the 
15,000 documents written by all of these founding fathers, the most influential nation builders that have ever existed, 34% of the things that they wrote referenced Paul and Deuteronomy. And I probably, I would be blessed if I could find one person in this church that could tell me all of the letters that Paul wrote. And the founding fathers birthed the nation from Paul. Consider that. Montesquieu uh, classified governments into three different kinds of government. And I want to give you this real quick so that we understand how blessed we are to have what we have. Um, he called the different uh, uh, forces that motivated these governments, he called them a spring. Because each government was like a watch. Because it had all these intricate parts and they all had to move, but it had to move precisely. And so he referenced the term spring as it relates to how a watch works. And so what motivated, what motivates or what energizes each of these different governmental systems he called spring. So in republics, at that time when he wrote his works, the most prevalent place for the republics to be was in uh, the European countries that were Protestant. So Protestant European countries had a republican form of government. The monarchs was in the, uh, obviously, the Catholic uh, European governments. Mostly the Western European governments were Catholic. And their spring was honor and shame. Honor the king, and you're shameful for not honoring the king. That was the spring that wound up the motivation of a monarch. And then the third form of government was a despot. Which the spring that wound up despots was uh, pleasure and fear. Mostly these were Muslim countries. And if you understand how Islam works, Islam works by uh, 72 virgins if you do what you're told to do. Or torture for the rest of eternity if you don't do. So it's pleasure and fear. If you do the right things, you get pleasure. You do the wrong things, you get fear. This is an this is a, a an Old Testament form of understanding. This is the law at work. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. This is what Jesus came to destroy. Was the law, the system that told you do good, get good, do bad, get bad. The Muslim Sultan, Balban, I don't know if I said it right, uh, he was in uh, Delhi, India, in 1266 to 1287. This is a quote from him. Fear of the governing power is the basis of all good government. Fearing your government is how you have good government. Guess what we have slowly started to deviate into in America we went from living just moral being virtuous as a people to fearing our government this is one of the reasons that I sued the government because I wasn't going to come here and have church in fear 
They're going to come and get me, put me in jail, kill me, persecute, whatever they're going to do, or they're not. But I am not going to live in fear of what they might do. (laughs) That's anti-hope. Republics, the spring that moves a republic, is virtue. Virtue. I want to explain this a little bit different. First, I want to tell you that politics, which is uh, another cuss word that you're not allowed to say at church. In fact, I've even heard uh, some of you uh, in this room and um, some of you not publicly, but privately on Facebook because you think Facebook is private. Uh, you've, you've lamented the fact that you hate it when politics are in church or politics are in Uh, So let me help you a little bit. The word politics is a Greek word that comes from polis, which is city. And the word ticks comes from the uh, Greek word for science. So it literally, politics literally means the science of a city. Are you sure you don't want that in the church? You don't want us to understand how to govern in the city. The Greek word citizen literally means co-ruler or joint king. Only republics have citizens. If you're in a monarch or in a despot, you are not a citizen. You are a plebe. You're a Serb. You're a servant. You're a, you're something, but you're not a citizen. There's no co-rulers in a monarch. <laughs> There's one ruler. Um, Montesquieu's definition for a republic is each citizen acts as a co-king, being conscious of the fact that each will be held individually accountable to God. You can only get here when you understand Scripture because Jesus is the King of... Which means you're a king. Well, I don't feel like a king. I don't give a rip what you feel like. I'm telling you what the Scriptures tell you. You're a king. You might be a sucky king. (laughs) A sucky king still a king. I I can read parts of the Bible that they had sucky kings. Can I say, is that okay? Yeah. I don't want to ask my mom. That's it. <laughs> There's bad kings. You might be a bad king, but you're still a king. I would encourage you to be a good king because you're going to answer to the king of kings. If a person understood that as part of a republic, see, when they formed republics, You could not form that for a group of people that did not understand scriptural strength and Judeo-Christian values because only in those two places could a person know that they are going to eventually be accountable to the king of the kings and exactly what they're going to be accountable for. And because of that, our nation operated pretty darn well for hundreds of years. Without a police force. Think about that. 
And I know that right now they're trying to defund the police, but that's not because America is so moral and virtuous that we don't need officers anymore. Now they're trying to throw us into an anarchy where everybody is fearful for their own lives and we end up into another civil war. But our country operated well for hundreds of years without an official police force, without prisons. Because people were generally virtuous. They were accountable to the scriptures. They were accountable to each other. And they all went to church. The pastor in those days meant a ton more than the punchline to the joke that we mean today. And I know not to you, because you all love me. In Jesus' name, I say by faith. I call those things that be not as though they were. But back in that day... The pastor of a town was literally the most influential person in the entire community. Because they understood what his responsibility was. His responsibility was to hold the folks of the community accountable for the moral, virtuous way that they were supposed to live their lives. And when the pastor was doing that well, then everybody in the community was successful. Why do you think the government wanted to shut down the church? (laughs) You, You might want to think about us moving back the direction. And I'm not saying this for me. Quit the church, go find a better pastor than me. That's fine, if that's what you need to do. So I'm not trying to exalt me. I'm not trying to put me in charge. I'm saying that the righteous standards that this activity produces in the hearts of people that have been liberated in the natural by the Republic of America and liberated in the Spirit by the King of all kings, Jesus Christ. Those moral virtues that we are aflame to in a pulpit like this. I understand not every pulpit is a pulpit like this. But the ones that we are aflame to in this pulpit. The righteous standards of how to live your life. How to love your neighbor. How to honor and love your spouse. How to live in purity. And how to honor and fear God. Those standards are the standards that the founding fathers needed for our country to continuously embrace in order for our country to continuously exist. Because any other personal, non-moral, non-virtuous standard will tear down the foundations of a government that has co-kings. Because once you become a monarch and you think everybody is here to serve you and the government is supposed to send you a check and they need to pass a law about that because I just don't like how they do that. Once you become that kind of a monarch, that tyrant, then this system of government immediately starts to fracture, break, and eventually will be dissolved. Republics only exist based upon the personal, virtuous, moral standard that is produced by the Holy Scriptures in a Judeo-Christian group of people 
It's the only way republics exist. Any other form is temporary at best. Montesquieu described a despot as a king with no strings attached, who rules without a conscience. This is how many people rule their own life. Who rule without a conscience, according to the whims and caprices, exercising absolute and arbitrary power. Uh, I know a bunch of teenagers that think this. You can't tell me what to do. You ain't my dad. Who do you think you are? I've heard him talk to the teachers and parents this way. (laughs) Uh, I will keep moving. Absolute power means the moment he says something, this, this tyrant, this monarch, the moment he says something, it is law. How many people think that they speak that way when they're talking to other folks? I've heard them. They're very demanding. Very uh, self-influential. And I've heard them pray, too. And they think that God's on their chain. They're going to have a shock at the end. Arbitrary power means no one can predict what they will say or do. Have you ever found yourself like, how did I do that? How did I... It's false freedom. It's disingenuous liberty. That's how you were able to get there. Montesquieu understood that man's nature was inherently selfish. Anybody want to argue? Opportunity. uh, Any opportunity provided to self that humans were likely to go after. If you have an opportunity to steal, only the knowledge and the Spirit of God on the inside of you will stop you. And and we can go through a gazillion sins. Once you're presented with an opportunity to do it, the only thing that will keep you from it is divine inspiration. But... Divine inspiration can keep you from it. If you're struggling right now with uh, different situations or um, issues, uh, especially reoccurring ones in your life, it's because you have never honestly, truly yielded to the divine inspiration on the inside of you. It says in Proverbs that a dog returns to its vomit. And I know that sounds terrible, but how many people have you seen literally go and eat up their own vomit? Again and again and again. And it turns their guts and they vomit it, but then they go and eat it again. It turns their guts and they vomit. It's just an, it's an ongoing cycle. I've watched it in people that I've tried to help for years and years and years. Just that cycle of sick. The scriptures say that a leopard cannot change its spot nor an Ethiopian can change its skin. And that's a cutesy way of saying, you can't change. You cannot, absolutely, you cannot change. Now you can put a bow on a pig. You can. You can clean that sucker up. You can put perfume on her. You can put a little tutu on her. And a bow in her little curly. But a pig's a pig. 
You cut that sucker up, fry her on a grill, and it's bacon. (laughs) The only way for you to change a pig is to kill the pig and birth something new. God knew that. That's why Jesus Christ had to do what he did. He wasn't fixing you. There's no such thing as self-help. Self is the one that got you into the hell that you're in. Self ain't getting you out. You can't self-help. You can't behavior modify enough. Behavior modification is just being a dry drunk. A drunk's a drunk. Until they're healed. But a lot of people think that if you're a drunk, if you just quit drinking, you'll be okay. No, you're just a dry drunk. And if you're pressed enough, if you've got enough pressure on you, and you've got enough temptation, and you've got enough opportunity, and nobody's looking, and God will give you grace, you'll get liquored up with the best of them. I've seen it over and over. There's, there was one guy that was a friend of mine. He, was, he literally had all the little things from AA, the little uh, stickers and stamps. And, and he was 28 years sober. And right now, he's on the streets in Dallas. Because he had one night, one night where he just had a little bit of too much pressure on the inside of him. And he told himself, I can handle it. And he's on the streets. 28 years. You can be a dry drunk. You might even make it to the end of your life. Way to go, cowboy. You're awesome. But why be a dry drunk? The Lord kills the leper, the Lord kills the Ethiopian, the Lord kills the pig, and the Lord kills the dog that eats its own vomit. And from the ashes of all of that death, He walks out of the resurrection tomb as a new creation that has never existed in mankind and then invites you into that way of life. So if you're struggling with the pig, the dog, the Ethiopian, the leper... My encouragement to you, go to the cross, die. Die. Die the most gruesome death you could possibly imagine. Because what will spring forth from the blood on the ground is something that's never existed before. uh, Montesquieu understood that man's nature was inherently selfish And that any person could be tempted to accumulate power and become a despot. St. Augustine called this libido dominandi. The lust to dominate. You know guys like this. And there's some girls. I know wives like this. God bless them. Montesquieu explained that once virtue is gone, a republic will become lawless. (laughs) They'll still have laws... They just won't mean nothing. Does anybody know any politicians? <laughs> There's laws, they just don't mean nothing. Well, we have a First Amendment. No, it's a pandemic. There's no First Amendment. Oh, I didn't know the Constitution blew up. There's laws that were just lawless. Because there's nothing to hold them accountable to the law. And God forbid you go to the justice system. Anybody seen the current state of our justice system? If you think the justice system is going to protect your rights, oh, please come to the altar after we're done. We're going to lay hands on you, invent a brain, 
and put it in your head. Because if you're dependent on the justice system giving you justice. (laughs) God bless you. The resulting insecurity for life and property causes individuals to beg for someone to restore order. Why do you think Antifa, BLM, why do you think the riots, why do you think defunding the police, why do you think that's going on? Because they'll eventually make it so terrible that people will beg to be controlled. Beg for control. Please, come rescue us. It's so bad. Please, help us out. And you know what they'll answer with? (laughs) I'm the government and I'm here to help. (laughs) Run! (laughs) If anybody knocks on your door and says they're from the government and they're there to help, I'm not telling you to exercise your Second Amendment rights. (laughs) Montesquieu wrote, One spring, more is necessary, namely virtue. When virtue is banished, ambition invades the minds of those who are disposed to receive it. And avarice, which is greed, possesses the whole community. It's exactly what happens. Greed. Um, ancient Israel, in the day of the judges, if you've ever read your Bible, uh, the book of Judges was the time for the nation of Israel to be run as a theocracy, as a republic. Theocracy as in answerable only to God, and a republic as a co-ruler, and they had judges. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a Congress. They didn't have all this. All they had were judges that helped them uh, work through problems. And if you are aware of your scriptures and you've ever read the book of Judges, it is the most terrible time that you could ever read about Israel's time. In fact, it gets to the end and the book of Judges kind of ends with this terrible, terrible story about the rest of the tribes, the 11 tribes, basically trying to kill the tribe of Benjamin. And the only reason they let them live was because somebody just said, hey, do we really want to kill off the whole tribe? Let's just leave a couple. So they left a couple hundred guys. And then they felt really terrible for them. And so they gave them a bunch of virgins so they could repopulate And that wasn't enough. And so they said, well, we also have this parade every once in a while where from this other tribe over here, from this other city, who, by the way, is not being represented by what we're telling you right now, when this other tribe on this certain day, all the ladies come out and dance before the Lord. They worship God. They dance. They play instruments. Um, Here's what we'll do. We'll let you go and kidnap all those girls, get them pregnant. You can keep them. And we won't persecute you. This is what happens when you have a godless system of government that doesn't have control. The founding fathers recognized that even the nation of Israel needed someone in charge. They needed a system of government that was outside of just a theocracy based upon a republic because those folks didn't listen to God. (laughs) Anybody know anybody that doesn't listen to God? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Um, Enoch Cobb Wines wrote in 1853, a fundamental principle of the Hebrew government was the education of the whole body of the people, especially in the knowledge of the Constitution, laws, and history of their own country. 
an ignorant people cannot be a free people. Oh my Lord, what a quote. Intelligence is essential to liberty. No nation is capable of self-government which is not educated to understand and appreciate its responsibilities. Psalm 32, verse 8 says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. This is God. It says the same thing in 1 John uh, chapter 4. It says that you won't need another man to teach you because you'll have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you teaching you. Isaiah said it this way, you'll hear a voice behind you that says, this is the way. Walk in it. But for those folks that are dull, anybody know anybody dull? Don't look at your spouse. For those folks that are dull, they need help. Uh, I'll be the first one. I need help. I just can't hear God's voice in everything all the time, in every decision, and so I need help. And so God, in His graciousness, gave me help. It's the Scriptures. And K. It's a great place for an amen, y'all. You, you ever met K? You should pray for K. More than you do, obviously. And I have counselors in my life that I've submitted myself to. That if they tell me I'm being a jerk, I've on purpose set on the inside of me to say that if they're telling me I'm being a jerk, I'm probably being a jerk. Because I've asked them to be that safeguard in my life. Kay does it really, really graciously. She just smiles and there's certain body language that I can read and say, I'm being a jerk. She didn't even have to say nothing. She's so awesome at it. She's got so much grace that she can just like walk by and give me that wink. The other wink, not that wink. The other wink. And I'm like, oh, I'm being a jerk. Amen. And some of you are trying to give me that wink right now, but I'm not looking at you. <laughs> Psalm 32.9 says, Be ye not as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Most spouses treat their spouse as a horse or a mule. They give them the rules. Here's the rules to be in relationship with me. Let me put the bit and the bridle on you, and I'll tell you how to act and which direction to go. This specifically says, don't be that way. Don't be a kind of person that you literally have to have some kind of external force directing you in the way that your life should go. You know how many people have told me what, um, when we were allowed in the jail and I was a chaplain, uh, I was chaplain during the time when uh, Illinois legalized marijuana. And so all these guys were really excited. And they said, what? What's the problem? It's legal. I said, you don't understand. Just because something is legal by the U.S. government's opinion, not even the U.S., the Illinois government, which they're obviously got it all figured out. Just because something is legal by Illinois government doesn't make it right. The God on the inside tells you that if you get high and you leave your brain, 
which is what it means. It means to get higher than your thinking, that you are not going to make good choices. Anybody ever been high? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) He said... That was awesome. (laughs) No, I not it was her. I was (laughs) Amen. The, the reason that the enemy wants to get you away from your understanding, your intellect, is because knowledge, my people perish for lack of knowledge. To get you high reduces your knowledge. And it makes you operate from animal instinct. Well, I would have never done that, but I was drunk. Animalistic. It's to get you out of what you were created to be. It's to get you out of your divine nature and into the nature of an animal. Don't be like an animal. What does a horse do? What is a, the reason that we have to spay and neuter all of our animals is because when they get to that moment, they'll mess up your pants while they're doing stuff to your leg. Right? Animals, like teenagers. I was one, so don't get all judgy with me, because I was one of those. I mean, not messing up pants. Yeah, I was messing up pants. Let's go back to my notes. Glad Kay's downstairs. I'm going to hear about this later. Let's go back to 1840, which was a way more pure time. In 1840, there was this fellow by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. You probably have heard of Tocqueville. So Tocqueville was a French philosopher who, uh, who watched his, his own country literally get decimated um, during uh, the French Revolution and other kind of... Most people don't know this, but while America was having a revolution, France was having a revolution, France was having a revolution without God on purpose to get God out of France because they thought that God was their problem. America was having a revolution with God because they realized God was their solution. Amen. The French Revolution led to the guillotine and hundreds of thousands of murdered people, starting with Christians and preachers. And guess what happened just a few decades later with the French Revolution? It ended up in a civil war, almost decimated the entire nation. They almost got, well, they actually did get invaded by Britain. Britain almost took over all of France. There almost didn't, uh, didn't exist a French because they got into a godless revolution. America gets into a godful revolution, and we are 245 years old, and we have the greatest nation on earth. So, the moral to the story is, don't revolt against God thinking that He's your problem. God's your solution. Revolt against anything that's anti-God. So, Tocqueville 
was commissioned by France to come to America. <laughs> Check this out. He was commissioned by France to come to America to study the American prison system because we had all of this incredible um, benefit and success in the prison system. <laughs> what they didn't know was that the prison system was run by the church and people were actually uh, encouraged with godly principles in the prison and so the recidivism rate was nearly zero. Because if you went to prison, you oftentimes got born again and once you got born again, there's no reason to be in prison because you don't do that stuff no more. So Tocqueville came here, authorized by the French government, paid for by the French government to study the American prison system. And so he comes around and he interviews all of these people. He literally interviewed every single inmate, I think it was either in New York or in New Orleans, um, prison system. And he pretty quickly figures out that the prison system is not the success of the prison system. And so he spends the rest of his time and all the money that the French gave him to go throughout the entire nation and study what is making this nation so amazing. So here's a French guy that comes over here for the singular purpose of trying to figure out what's making America, like what's the secret sauce? How is America so awesome while French is not so much? Let me read you what he said. This is in his book, non-American, non-Christian. This is his words. I sought for the key to America's greatness and genius in her harbors, in her fertile fields, in her boundless fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce. In her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Man. Currently, right now, there is a certain political person who flies under the banner of MAGA. Make America Great Again. And a lot of the opponents of the MAGA movement... Say, when was America ever great? Well, according to the French, non-Christian, paid for by the government, to come over here and figure out what America was great, it was at least great in 1840 when her pulpits were aflame with righteousness and the populace of America was sitting in the pew. So I want America to be made great again. And one of the ways that America is going to be great again is by the pulpits being aflame with the scriptures, the promises, and the premise of liberty and freedom by the first son of liberty, his name is Jesus Christ, and also by these pews and these chairs being full. I'm going to tell you the story about the Constitutional Convention. The story. This is, a, this is really honestly a cool story. Those of you that come to church to hear cool stories, 
I'm going to give you a cool story. So, obviously we were in that, we actually, in on our birthday, July 4, 1776, we were already a year into conflict. There was already war, we were already in battles, or we'd already lost actually a bunch of battles. When they got together in the... Uh, to, to create the Declaration of Independence and to create the foundations of our Constitution. They were agreed upon on July 4, 1776. That's why it's recognized as our birthday. They were unanimously declared um, and agreed upon. So we had 13 colonies. So we, we uh, take these precepts, these principles, this liberty, with all of this, and I pray that you understand this, there was countless, countless encounters of what they uh, called providential, uh, that was George Washington loved to use that term, was providential um, involvement in the American Revolution. And what he means by there was literally supernatural. And and I'm telling you, if I start telling one story, I'm going to tell a ton, so I'm not going to tell any stories, but please go research divine encounters during American Revolution, and it is endless. I mean, there's, okay, I won't start. So, we win the war. We win, by conflict, our right to be our own sovereign nation. The problem was, was three years later, uh, the, the system of government that we were operating under was not going to work. And so they got together what was called the Constitutional Convention, and they had delegates from all 13 colonies come And their sole singular purpose was to actually form the government, the system of government that this newfound country was going to be able to operate by in longevity. And so this was their sole focus was to come together in the Constitutional Convention. Now I want you to think about this. In these 13 colonies, you got way south. You got Virginia is the greatest uh, uh, colony and they're the strongest and they're super south. And you got like New York which is very north and not very big, which, think about that now. And so their, their job was to come together to get into unity, to figure out a system of government where they could all maintain their sovereignty, but yet we would also have a government that could be cohesive and operate into future generations. It was obviously not going very well. So they, they got together in June, and they spent uh, three or four weeks literally just fighting. <laughs> you imagine a bunch of stuffy old white guys trying to figure it out. Um, so in the middle of that, uh, James Madison, who you might remember, he was one of our presidents, um, he actually uh, introduced an entire new governmental system. To that point, what they were doing was they were wrestling with the, uh, with the articles of confederacy that we had, trying to make them better. And so finally they said, hey, you know what, let's just completely start all over and get a brand new governing, governing, governing document. And then they all like threw a super fit, like, oh my gosh, are you for real? Start all over. <laughs> And I've been a leader for a long time and a, and a business owner and a manager. And the worst thing you can say is, hey, let's start all over. They love that. 
The initial reaction by the other delegates was hesitancy and doubt, for they believed that the people would oppose any dramatic change, and therefore it would fail. And so they were looking for half measures. George Washington, God bless him, statesman. Um, I'm, I'm not going to start talking about George Washington. I'll get off track. Uh, he was the leader of the assembly, and he, uh, he agreed that it was probable that no plan we proposed would be adopted by the people. The people weren't looking for a brand new system of government. They just wanted them to fix the old one. But, he said, he warned them that uh, if we didn't do it right, we would eventually end up in another war trying to get it right. And obviously, at this point, he was done. He was fed up to his curly wig with war. And so he challenged the delegates to be bold, telling them, if to please the people we offer what we ourselves disapprove, how can we afterward defend our work? Man, think about that. Basically, what he's saying is compromise is undefendable. How many people live their Christian life in compromise? And you wonder why you can't defend the way you are. He concluded by urging the delegates to raise a standard of the best government they could possibly devise, no matter how much change it required, and then trust that the event is in the hands of God. George Washington trusted God like few people ever in history. So after a few more weeks, they still were incapable of doing it. Now this is, uh, this is so interesting. They were, uh, they're in this fight, it's not happening, they even got George Washington, like, he's basically kind of like the king of America. I mean, he literally was revered as nearly at, to the God status because of what he had accomplished. And so, they're still not figuring it out, and they're about to dissolve. And everybody go home, and they're just like, we'll just figure it out later, which would have eventually led to another war. And at this time, Benjamin Franklin, who was old, he was like 71, um, obviously a great statesman. At that time, the average age uh, was 33. The, lifespan, I'm sorry, the average lifespan was 33. If you were alive in 1787, which is when this was, if you were alive in 1787, you could expect to live to be 33 years old. And here's Benjamin Franklin, 71. So obviously they all understood he was a smart dude, <laughs> just by default. Um, but obviously we all know that he was an incredibly smart fella. Now here's the interesting thing. The two most picked on people in the Founding Fathers is Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin because they were called deists. Which means that they weren't these fired up crazy Christians that were all out there using the name of Jesus in all their documents. They were deists. They just believed there was a God. They believed the scriptures were really important, and they probably weren't born again. Think about that. Some of the deists in our founding father, as founding fathers, were actually more committed to Christian principles than many of the Christians that are sitting in churches today. It's radical. So Benjamin Franklin, this old guy, who was not a Christian, just a deist, just believed there was a God, thought the scriptures were pretty important. He's watching everybody fight, and they're literally about to get done. They're like about to get up and walk out. Now, Benjamin Franklin was this statesman kind of guy. He served in all these different places, and so he was like the, he was like the, the chest out, really proud statesman kind of fella. 
And he almost never said a word without having notes with he read from. And oftentimes, he didn't even read his own notes. He had somebody else read what he said. So in the middle of this thing literally going nuclear, Benjamin Franklin stands up, no notes, and literally just off the cuff, makes these 11 sentences in his speech. In this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Britain, we were sensible of danger. We had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. That God, all capital letters, underlined twice. God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice... Is it possible or probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to officiate in that service. And then the deist, who's not a Christian, sits down. So, I'm, I'm just told this speech, these 11 sentences, to this crowd of Christians, who everyone in here has multiple copies and versions of a Bible. You just heard me read his speech that he said off the cuff. Can anyone guess, in those 11 sentences, how many biblical references he made? The winner can drink the rest of my coffee. In those 11 sentences, he used groping in the dark, Job 12.25, Father of lights, James 1.17, illuminate our understanding, James 1.5, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, Matthew 10.29 and Luke 12.6, can an empire rise without his aid, Daniel 4.17, Psalms 75.7, 
Except the Lord build the house, they that labor in vain that build it. Psalms 127.1, the builders of Babel. Genesis 11.1 through 9, to a reproach and a byword. Deuteronomy 28.37, 2 Chronicles 7.20, 1 Kings 9.7, Psalms 44.14. 11 sentences off the cuff from a deist who's not a Christian, who's presiding in the Constitutional Convention of the Birth of the Nation, and he quotes 15 times from Scripture in 11 sentences. And we're told that our founding fathers were not godly or Christian. So he makes this incredible oration. And the amazing thing is everybody kind of comes to their senses. And they realize they were not bringing God into the affairs that they needed to be bringing God into. So, what do you think they did? Like, hit their knees and started praying and... There probably wasn't any spirit-filled guys in there, so... No. George Washington uh, called for a uh, for them to go to recess. So they went to recess. All these guys, 13 colonies. And for the next three days, every one of them went to church for three days in a row, all day long. And they listened to the preacher preach powerful sermons about liberty, about freedom, about personal virtues, about morality, about the importance of using the Scriptures to form all the things, all the, all the stable places and the foundations of their life. For three days, all of these representatives went to church and prayed. And they came back on July 4th, on the 11th birthday of our country. And they gathered back together. And before they did a thing, they called for the Reverend Jacob Duchesne from Christ Church, right down in Philadelphia, to come and pray over them before they did a thing, single thing in this new government. And so the Reverend Jacob Duchesne came And you think that he gave this beautiful, flowery, wonderful prayer. No, they spent two and a half hours in a prayer meeting. Where during this prayer, he was rebuking them, he was correcting them, he was doing... This is the priest ruling over the king. This is Old Testament foundational government. Where the king and the priest work together to effectively govern in natural human government. They literally submitted themselves to the pastor to come in there, to pray down divine uh, interaction, to ask for the providence of God, and to, if necessary during the prayer, to rebuke the stuffy old white guys who were not doing the right thing. And then after they got done, do you think they got to business? No. Then they had a two-hour Bible study session where they studied four chapters of Scripture, one of them being Psalm 35. Psalm 35 became very instrumental for the building of this new nation and for the formation of what we call our Constitution. And the reason that this became so uh, passionate to them was because... It specifically said that if they do this right, that God Himself will watch over what they are doing. Uh, John Adams, the third president of the United States, actually wrote back home 
to his wife, Abigail Adams. If you don't know the story of John Adams and Abigail Adams, it is one of the most incredible stories. And for all the gals in the room, one of the founding fathers, when we reference that terminology, actually includes Abigail Adams. Because Abigail Adams, who had no career, had no job, who knew her purpose, her mission in life, was to support her husband, to raise and love her children, and to manage their home. And because of it, she became one of the top six most influential people in the birth of this nation. She started a nation from being a little old housewife. God's system is actually better than man's system. The reason that man's system wants to get the wife and the mother out of the home and into the workforce is to turn her into a man. I'm sorry that I don't have time to, to flower it up, but that's the reason. Because if we have men being men, and men being emasculated, which is what they are, they've been castrated by society and oftentimes castrated by their wives. And so when you have men being women and women being men, you don't actually have a functional society. When you have men being men, like the founding fathers, and you have women being women, like Abigail Adams, you have, A, one of the most public displays of a love story that you will ever find. Please go and read the story of Abigail and John Adams. It is beautiful. They corresponded incessantly. Some of the most amazing language that you'll ever see between two lovers. And Abigail Adams, her intellect and the divine part of her was so Powerful and influential that John Adams was one of the most powerful and establishment people in the entire foundation of the government. And it was because of Abigail encouraging him, giving him courage, and giving him wisdom that he did what he did. Amen. So all you gals in the room that think that little old housewife doesn't mean nothing. Maybe God wants you to help start a nation. And because you don't value who you are, you can't. Thomas Paine said, What we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. One of the problems with our generation, mine, um, a little bit the one before me, so my parents, my children for sure, and the generation under my children that is now coming to be, is they've never had a struggle. Never had a struggle. I mean, we literally make fun of it because right now we have this saying, like, the struggle's real. You know, when your kid comes up to you and he's like, the fifth remote for the Nintendo is broken and so I can't play with my friends. I literally had, one of the worst days that I've had in a long time was I was at Craig's house. Craigers, Pastor Craigers. I was at Pastor Craigers' house and I was helping him move in and we found a Nintendo. So why didn't you guys cheer? And a, a real Nintendo, an actual Nintendo, Super Nintendo, uh, whatever. And he had Contra. 
Is it just me? What's, what's wrong with you people? Does anybody remember Nintendo and Contra? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, select, start. You could have infinite lives. Nobody, nobody remembers? Contra! And Nintendo, and he had them both. And a TV. I don't even have a TV. So he had, he had a TV and a Nintendo and Contra. And we had the night free. I could stay up all night. My wife would have let me. And so I was going to play Contra with Pastor Craigers on the Nintendo. And it was broke. <laughs> it was broke. The red light just flashed. It was just terrible. And I got mad at Greg. Because he lied. That's why I was mad. He lied. He said it worked. That's why I was mad. And he still hasn't repented. This is why he's a lowly youth pastor. I would promote him, but he still lied. That was a bad day. It was a bad day that I couldn't play Contra as a 46-year-old man. The struggle's real. But this is what I'm talking about. Because your generation, my generation, our children's generation, and our grandchildren's generation literally had no struggle. Their biggest struggle is... They don't have the toys that they, they don't have the shoes that light up like the other kids, right? They they don't have the 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 teddy bear that talks. They don't have the and would they? I've seen these kids literally throw themselves down in stores and throw a hissy fit. And some of them are your kids, so don't be all like self righteous. I've seen your kids throw hissy fits too over nothing. Whereas three, four generations ago, they were in world wars. They didn't eat for days so that they could give up food so that the soldiers could eat. In London, they literally took every child out of the city of London, took them off into the recesses of England in the middle of nowhere and put them in tents. And they lived together for years in tents so that they wouldn't be bombed by Germany living in the city of London. And grew up absolutely healthy. Your parents don't give you the special kind of pie that you want. And you're going to grow up disgruntled because you had family problems when you were little. Because your daddy didn't love you and hug you enough. That's why we don't actually have a struggle. So therefore there's nothing to struggle for. We don't have any value for what you have. You are literally in the most prosperous time that humanity has ever existed. In the greatest nation that's ever been born. And you have Jesus. And some of you are on depression medication. Thomas Paine said, what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. Jesus said the same thing in and. Luke chapter 7, where he said that he that is forgiven much, loves much. Because you don't understand what you have, there's no reason to love it. What we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. This is why some of you struggle in your marriages. You don't actually have a dearness for your mate. God actually cares more for your mate than you do. God was willing to trade Jesus to get your mate. You're not even willing to trade your paycheck to keep them happy. Right. 
Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Just so you know, heaven operates in freedom and liberty. It's heaven's value. And so for us to have it, we should endear it to our heart. Ronald Reagan warned prophetically. I call him Rinaldus Magnus because he was one of the greatest presidents we've ever had. Rinaldus Magnus said, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in our bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. I watched... I know I need to be done. I'm sorry. You'll be okay. I promise you. We'll let you eat an extra brat at Pastor Bob's house if you just suffer through one more story. My mom, when my father passed away, uh, I've been helping mom do stuff and things at the house. And Jim had a peculiar peculiar taste in nearly all things. Because I got his bullet, which, by the way, anybody who wants to buy the bullet is for sale. <laughs> and... Uh, movies. He's like a, he was a 007 kind of guy and a, he, just a peculiar. And so one of the movies that was on their shelf when I was helping mom clean up stuff was Schindler's List. And, and the reason, and that hum that we just heard go over the congregation means that most of you have seen it. Well, if A, if you haven't seen it, please see it. B, if you haven't seen it lately, please see it. I watched it a couple weeks ago. Just because I got it from mom's house. And I was like, you know what? I haven't seen a movie in a long time. I'm going to watch a movie. I wanted to watch Sindler's List. And I forgot it was a three-hour movie. (laughs) Praise Jesus. So I put it in. And I I was in my office watching it on my computer. I literally was standing in my office fighting back tears while I was watching this movie because it was it could literally have been shot in 2020 by American politicians as the Nazis and the Jewish population it they were so good at what they did the Nazis were so good it was just a little bit of freedom that was taken away and a little bit of freedom that was taken away and a little bit of freedom and and there was all this commentary in the movie like well you know it's just for it's just for our good it, it's just for a little while it'll get back we'll get back to it this is the conversation taking place among this amongst the Jews it's just for now it's 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 for the better good it's just because of the war it's just it's just it's just it's just and at the end of the movie, they're walking them into the ovens. It's just for now. It's just for your good. You could have shot that movie last year. And I was broken on the inside. Because I had found, even in my own life, yes, I know, your pastor, the guy that did the thing and the stuff. 
I had found even in my own life that I had allowed freedom and liberties to be slowly chipped away and taken away from me. And I resolved in that office watching that movie that my children were not going to be marched into ovens. My grandchildren were not going to be marched into ovens. And I'll do whatever it takes. And I am asking you to join me. To do whatever it takes. To protect the freedom and the liberties that was produced by the blood, firstly, of our Savior. And then by the blood that watered the tree of liberty in our founding father and our patriots that have died on battlefields all over this world. And honor the fact that today... Those bombs bursting in air means something. That flag means something. And that what we celebrate today means something. And make it mean something to you. Because if it means nothing, then when they come to take it away, it's easy to remove. But if it means something, you'll defend it. Until the death if necessary. Please rise. I'd like to bless you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of His life-changing Word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God, and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.